Her name is Joyce. So if you can just think of, well, Lord knows. If you can't remember that, just think Teresa's mom. <laughs> Lord knows who she is. So, But I just appreciate your prayers. And for my dad. My dad is really struggling with all this, as you can imagine. So, Well, um, and I also didn't want to forget to thank, I so appreciate Laura and Donna. Um, they do an awesome, awesome job. So, I, I mean, there's no worries on who's up here on Wednesday mornings because we know that this is the Lord's Bible study and the Holy Spirit's the teacher anyway, but I do appreciate them because they've had to jump in and scramble at the last minute to fill in. So I appreciate them. So just a couple of announcements. Just a reminder, if you would, um, about bringing drinks in here. We just, If you could remember, just nothing but water. Um, so that we can uh, take care of the facility like they've asked us to. And also, is that me? And so um, they may not be able to come if, if, if we don't are cognizant to wear, not wear perfumes on Wednesday, okay? Or lotion. So if you guys could just remember that, that would be great. Well, isn't our study in John going by fast? Do you think it is? Are you getting a lot out of it? I sure am. And as we approach the end of this book, we're also approaching the end of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And as we jump into chapter 18 today, keep in mind that everything we've been learning these past several weeks from chapter 13 on through today has taken place during one evening, the night before Jesus was killed. And on this last night, Jesus and his disciples had shared an intimate meal where he had washed their feet, and then uh, Judas was finally exposed as the one who was going to betray him, remember? Jesus had talked at length with them and tried to prepare them for what's about to happen. He's encouraged them to trust him and obey him, obey what he's taught them, and to continue on in the mission that he's given them, even though it's going to be very difficult and they may not fully understand everything at this point. He's also promised them that even though he'll be leaving soon, he will come back for them and take them to be with him in his father's house. But until that time, he said he would send the Holy Spirit to help them. Now last week, as Laura led us through chapter 17, we got to listen in on Jesus' prayer with his father. And what a tender prayer that was. He talked to his father and asked him to help him. He prayed for himself, not only that he would glorify his father, but he also prayed for these disciples, for their protection and their unity, and that they would be sanctified or set apart for God's use by the truth of the word. And then Jesus also prayed for all of those in the future who would believe the message that these disciples were going to be spreading. And guess what, girls? Who is that? That's us. Yeah. So now it's very, very late in the evening. Dinner is over. His teaching is done. Jesus has prayed for and has prepared his disciples as much as he can. And now begins the last leg of his journey to finish the work that his father had given him to do. His hour had come to go to the cross, to die as God's true Passover lamb. Now, in one sense, this is the worst hour possible. It's Satan's hour. But in another sense, it's the best hour possible. It's God's hour. See, it was Satan's plan to kill Jesus. But it was God's predetermined plan to have him willingly lay down his life for the redemption of mankind and then to rise again, to save you and to save me. Now, as we go through this chapter, we're going to see Jesus as both the lion, who's in complete control of all this situation, but at the same time, he's also the lamb in submission to his father's plan. So, if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open with me to John chapter 18. And let's dive in here today. But before we begin, let's pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher, okay? Father, we just simply ask 
that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I just pray that you will take your written word, bring it alive to our hearts, make it come true, make we maybe see the truth, open our eyes and our hearts to receive that truth and teach us what you would have each one of us to know and understand. Because we know if you're not our teacher, this is just going to be time spent today. We count on you promise to do that, so we're counting on that, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Have you gotten to John chapter 18? All right. Let's read, just to get our minds set, let's read, uh, let's start reading and we'll read maybe the first 11 verses, okay? It said, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. And he sent his he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "Who is it that you want?" "Jesus of Nazareth," they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, he answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So after spending their last intimate time together, the disciples followed Jesus across the Kidron Valley to an olive grove on the Mount of Olives called uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now remember, Judas had left while the, the disciples and Jesus were still in the upper room having dinner. And he went there in order to finalize the plans he had made earlier with these religious leaders to betray Jesus. And he was fairly certain that Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane because it was a favorite place for Jesus to go when he was in Jerusalem to kind of get away from the crowds and spend time in prayer and have uh, fellowship and maybe some teaching or just some rest with his disciples. But none of those was the reasons that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane on that particular night. The reason Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane on this particular night was because he knew that that's where Judas would be bringing these soldiers. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Judas had told the authorities that Jesus would be there, and so that's where Jesus went. It was his hour. The son of man, the good shepherd, was going to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus was walking towards his own execution. He hasn't been tricked. He hasn't been surprised. He went right to the place where he knew Judas was going to be leading his enemies to arrest him. And when they show up, there are as few as 50 to as many as um, 600 Roman soldiers that came, as well as as many as 200 temple police. And there were also numerous religious officials and from the chief priests and Pharisees, as well as other people like the servants, like Malchus. So it was a huge group that was coming. Now, religious leaders had been wanting to get uh, rid of Jesus for a long time but had been afraid that if they tried to do something during uh, the daytime in, a public, in public, that it could cause a riot. Because remember, just a few days ago, all the people had hailed Jesus as their Messiah when he came in riding on the donkey. Remember that? But now, here in the middle of the night, Judas is leading this large group of soldiers and officials to arrest him. And verse 3 tells us that this group was carrying torches and lanterns as well as weapons. So they must have been afraid of some kind of conflict. 
or that Jesus was going to try to resist or flee and that they're going to have to hunt him down. But Jesus had no intention of resisting or fleeing. Notice that he doesn't even wait for somebody to approach him. What does he do? In full control of the situation, verse 4 tells us that Jesus takes the initiative and he goes out to meet those who came to arrest him and he asks them, who is it that you want? Oh, notice also that the scripture makes it a point to say that Judas the traitor was standing there with this large group that had come to arrest him. By this time, it's too late to do anything for Judas. He had gone past the point of no return. But Jesus went out to face this army and he asked, who is it that you want? And when they answered Jesus of Nazareth, the original text says that Jesus responded, I am. Now, does that phrase sound familiar to any of you? That was the name that God called himself in the Old Testament, remember? Throughout this book of John, we've seen Jesus claim to be God in the flesh. And he had proven this claim over and over again with his miracles that he'd done. Remember, we've studied the seven I am statements that Jesus made in this book. So here, once again, in the closing hours of his life, Jesus is claiming that he is God by saying, I am, when the soldiers asked, when the soldiers said they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, did you notice what happened when he said this phrase? I'll tell you, I had read this over and over, and I had never noticed this before. But when he spoke the name, I am, the name of God, all these highly trained soldiers, the temple police, the religious leaders, and the chief priests were all thrown back helplessly to the ground, just at the power of his name. Now, can you imagine that scene? All these men lying flat on their backs, not knowing what just hit them? What should that have shown them? Who were they dealing with? God himself, right? They couldn't have touched Jesus if he hadn't given them permission. One word was enough. I mean, remember, he created the world by simply speaking, and it came into existence. And he had the power to stop his arrest with just a word if he wanted to. But he didn't. Well, as they're scrambling, trying to regain their composure, and their armor's clanking as they're trying to get back on their feet, Jesus asks them again, who is it that you want? Now, he repeats this question to remind them that their orders were to arrest him, not the disciples that were with him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been one of those soldiers, I'd be having second thoughts about arresting this guy, wouldn't you? But once again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth is who we want. And Jesus said, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Now, John doesn't mention this in his um, gospel, but Judas had evidently expected some kind of trouble or deception, so he had given them, a, these authorities, a prearranged sign. He said, you'll know which one to arrest when I greet them with a kiss. So at this point, G Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him like he would greet a close family member or a close friend. Now, it was bad enough to betray Jesus. But to do it with a kiss, a sign of love and affection, that's just right out of the pit of hell, ladies. It wasn't even necessary for Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss because he had already told the soldiers who he was. But remember who's controlling Judas at this point. Who is it? Satan, yeah. Now Jesus could have destroyed Satan on, or Judas on the spot, couldn't he? Now I don't know about you, but I would have sure been tempted to do just that. But not Jesus. He didn't do that. Now, verse 10 tells us that Peter wasn't going to let Jesus be taken without a fight. So trying to protect Jesus, he impulsively whips out his sword and he, sword and he starts swinging. But being a fisherman and not a soldier, his aim was probably pretty lousy. And he was probably aiming for a head or a throat and instead he got an ear. Either that or Malchus, who was the slave of the high priest, 
happened to duck at just the right time and he just got an ear instead of killing him. But this impulsive reaction by Peter could have wound up getting all the disciples either killed or arrested, which is exactly what Jesus was trying to prevent. So immediately, Jesus goes to work to defuse the situation by commanding Peter to put away his sword, and then he reattached the ear that Peter had cut off. Now, ladies, only God could do that, right? So twice here in a matter of minutes, we have seen him reveal himself as God. So again, Jesus told Peter to put away his sword and allow God's plan to unfold. And he says in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about here? It's that the suffering and the death and the separation from the Father that was required to pay for the sins of the world. Now notice that Jesus didn't see this cup or all these events as coming from the hand of Judas or of these um, religious leaders. Jesus was able to accept this cup because he knew that it came from the Father's hand. And since the Father had mixed and measured the contents of all this that was in this cup, Jesus knew that he had nothing to fear. Now, ladies, this is a good lesson for us. We never have to be afraid of the cup that the Father gives us. He knows how much we can take. And he gives these cups to us out of his wisdom and his love. Now, you've heard me say several times this year that nothing can come into our lives that hasn't come through the loving and sovereign hand of our Father, right? It's had to come through his hand first. So whatever pain or suffering that he has allowed to come into our life, we can trust that he has a purpose for it. And ultimately, whatever this is, is going to be for our good and for his glory. He's our good and our loving father. And the cups he gives us will never contain anything that will hurt us. That's not what it's intended to do. So no matter what cup that God has given you today, or what um, suffering that you're enduring right now, you don't have to be afraid of it. And you don't have to run or run from it or try to fight it. Jesus was willing to drink the cup that the Father had given him. In fact, that was the very reason that he had come to this earth. Now, Jesus did not need Peter's protection. I mean, think about it. If Jesus could had the power to flatten an army with just a word and to re-instantly heal and reattach a severed ear, do you think he could have saved himself from arrest and death? Do you? You don't sound very convinced. Absolutely. And Matthew 26, 53 tells us that Jesus also could have called on the Father at any time, and the Father would immediately send legions of angels to help him. So he didn't need any protection. But he didn't call on these angels, and he didn't stop them from arresting him. He allowed his enemies to arrest him because it was his Father's will. It was the cup the Father had given him, so he willingly submitted. He voluntarily chose to go to the cross to die, and he did it for us. Now, I want you to really think about that this morning. You know, this is such a familiar story that sometimes we we can know it by heart, but we don't really ever think about it. Why did God send Jesus to earth to die? Why? Why did he send him? Because he loves us. He loves you and he loves me. Now I want you to close your eyes for just a minute because there's a lot of distractions that can get us distracted. But close your eyes for just a minute and let these words really sink in. God loves me. Say that out loud to yourself. God loves me. God loves me. God, the creator of the universe, loves me. God loves me. He's not against me. He's for me. 
He's not just way out there somewhere waiting for me to mess up so he can zap me. No, God loves me. God loves me. A sinner. Self-centered. Selfish. Somebody who messes up all the time. Totally unworthy. But God loves me. He sent his one and only son to die for me and for you. Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer and die in my place for my sin. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? Now, if you don't leave here remembering anything else today, I hope that you will never forget that truth, that God loves me. At any moment, Jesus could have refused to go to the cross, stopped and destroyed all of its enemies with one word. But he allowed himself to be arrested and killed because he loves me. So keep this in mind as we study the rest of the events in this book of John. Now, amazingly, the soldiers and temple police act like nothing miraculous had just happened, and they carry out their orders. They arrest Jesus, and they tie him up. Now, do you find that comical? God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, was allowing those he had created to tie his hands with a rope. Now, why would Scripture highlight the fact that they bound Jesus? Did you ever think of that? Why did they highlight that fact? How many of you were here last year when we studied Jesus in the Old Testament? Okay, several of you. Do you remember studying the types of Jesus? The pictures that foreshadowed Jesus' coming? Well, Isaac was bound before Abraham put him on the altar as a sacrifice. Remember? The animals in the temple were bound before they were sacrificed on the altar. These were types or pictures that foreshadowed Jesus. Now Jesus is here on earth in the flesh. And God's sacrificial lamb is allowing himself to be bound and prepared for that final sacrificial offering. We are bound in sin. And now Jesus comes and becomes bound with our sin and will die as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that an amazing picture? Now just a few short hours ago, the disciples were with Jesus enjoying a meal and fellowship together. Now Jesus is completely alone. All the disciples have fled for their lives. And even though they had the best intentions, their courage dissolved and every last one of them abandoned Jesus. So they led him away alone in the middle of the night to the house of Annas, who was the former high priest. Now, Jewish law um, said that the uh, high priest was, the office of high priest was held for life. But see, the Romans didn't like one person having that much power, so they kept rotating the people that held that office. But after they removed Annas from that position, five of Annas's sons served as high priest, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was in that position at this time. So even though Annas no longer officially held the office of high priest, he was really the true power behind the position. And he was the one that the Jews still looked to as the high priest. Now, Annas was a notoriously greedy man. A big part of his wealth came from his crooked business dealings of selling animals for the temple sacrifices. Remember, they had to be a perfect animal. And whenever people would bring their animals in, he would say, no, it's got a blemish, you've got to buy one of mine. Okay? He also had a lucrative racket going with the money changers and made a lot of money from the exorbitant fees that they charged foreign people to exchange their foreign currency to pay their temple tax. Now, do you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a couple of different occasions, what did he do in the temple? He cleared it out, remember? Threw over the money changing tables. So... Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, had a real hatred for Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him because he threatened their power as well as their financial interests. But at the same time, because Jesus was so popular, they were afraid of a riot. 
So they had to be very careful how they got rid of him. So they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night, and they took him immediately to Annas' house. Now, verse 14 makes it a point to remind us that Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Now, why do you think that they pointed that out and reminded us of that? They are showing us that the uh, judgment had already been made up. They had already decided to kill Jesus. So this was not going to be a fair trial in any way, shape, or form. In verse 15, the scene shifts now to the courtyard surrounding Annas' house. And there, Peter and another disciple were trying to find out what was happening to Jesus. After attacking Malchus and seeing Jesus arrested, Peter had fled with the arrest of the disciples. But he and another disciple had managed to regain their composure, and they followed at a distance to Annas' house. Now, since the yard was walled and had a guarded entrance, they couldn't just walk in. And we're told that this other disciple was able to go in because he knew the high priest while Peter had to wait outside by the door or the gate. Now, most scholars think that this other disciple was John. We don't know for sure exactly how the high priest might have known John, but we do know that John's mom was Salome, who was related to Mary. And if you remember, Mary was was related to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was married to Zechariah, who was a priest. You remember that? So it might have been that the high priest knew John through this family connection. Or also, remember that John's dad, Zebedee, was a very um, prosperous fisherman. He had a big fishing business. So it could be that James and John had delivered fish regularly to the high priest's family. We just don't know. But regardless, because this disciple was known to the high priest, he was able to go right on into the courtyard. Then he asked permission for Peter to come in, and when he asked the servant girl on duty, and, he, and Peter came in, the servant girl asked him, said, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And without hesitating, what did Peter say? No. One minute Peter is brave and chopping off an ear in front of all these soldiers, but now he's lying to a young servant girl because he's afraid to be known as one of Jesus' disciples. Now, at this point, Peter may have been mentally kicking himself for denying Jesus. Or he may not even have realized he had done it. But to avoid more questions, I'm sure Peter Peter probably hurried across the courtyard toward the place where he saw some of the high priest's servants and officials were standing, warming themselves by a fire. And he tried to blend in as much as possible. Meanwhile, the scene shifts back to Jesus. Notice this constant shifting back and forth. John is showing us the righteousness of Jesus. They're trying to prove him guilty. He's handling himself. There's no crime. There's no sin. The sinless son of God compared to all these high priests who are lying and having a false trial. Uh, Jesus, or Peter is lying, saying he doesn't know Jesus. Judas is deceived. Or What's the word? Betraying, thank you. That went right on my head. The disciples have abandoned him. So do you see the compare and contrast? But um, verse 19 says that Annas was questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, this was totally illegal because Jewish law required witnesses to be heard and formal charges presented before a prisoner could be questioned. Instead, Annas was asking vague and general questions, trying to fish to get Jesus to incriminate himself of some crime that would justify the death sentence that they already wanted pronounced. Now, Jesus knew the law. So he points out the illegal proceedings by essentially saying, I've been preaching in public, so ask those who heard me. They can tell you what I taught. Call your witnesses. That's what the law requires. Well, when they heard this, they knew what they were doing was wrong, so one of the officials hit Jesus in the face. Now, to hit a prisoner, especially one not accused of a crime, was also illegal. And so Jesus points him back again to the law, and he said, if I've spoken wrongly, tell me of the wrong. Correct me. But if I spoke the truth, why did you hit me? That's illegal. 
Once again, Jesus is exposing the fact that they were not following the law at all. Now notice, too, that Jesus is very careful to protect his disciples by leaving them out of the conversation. So think about that. While Peter was in the courtyard denying the Lord, Jesus was on trial protecting Peter. Now at this point, they should have released Jesus because there were no witnesses, there was no crime, there is no indictment. See, they can't release him. They want him dead. And only Caiaphas, who is the current reigning high priest, could bring legal charges against Jesus. So that's where they send him next. Now in verse 25, the focus shifts back to to Peter as he stood warming himself by the fire. And as you now as you read through this, it seems like all these things happen in a matter of minutes. But this section of the account probably occurs over a, a time period of at least an hour or more. But as Peter stood around the fire warming himself, those standing with him start to get suspicious. Maybe it was his Galilean accent that gave him away. We don't, we don't know. But they said, you know, aren't you one of his disciples? Now here was a chance for Peter to redeem himself and be courageously honest. But once again, he denies it. And later, a relative of Malchus, whose ear he had cut off, uh-oh, they saw Peter, and they challenged him, said, didn't I see you in the garden? Well, now Peter panics, because being a disciple of Jesus wasn't a, wasn't a crime as of yet, but assaulting a man with a sword, that was a crime. So this guy could really get Peter into big trouble for what he had done in the garden. And so for a third time, he emphatically denies knowing Jesus. And guess what happened at that very moment? The sound of a rooster crowing could be heard announcing the dawn of a new day. And when Peter heard it, he remembered what Jesus had said. Now Luke also tells us that at this exact moment, Jesus was being led across the courtyard, and he turned and he looked right at Peter. Now that look pierced Peter's heart. I'm sure he never forgot that look. When Peter saw those eyes filled with mercy and tender love, I'm sure he was overwhelmed with shame and guilt and grief at denying his Lord and says he ran out into the streets weeping bitterly. He had been warned. He was given three opportunities to stand up for Christ, but he failed them all. Now, before we're too hard on Peter, let's face it, we're just like him. All of us have been guilty of denying or betraying Jesus in some way, haven't we? I mean, it's always easier to stand for Jesus when there's a crowd to back you up. But when it's just you and there are no friends around to encourage you or to support you, it's sometimes easier just to keep your mouth shut or to deny the Lord like Peter. Because of the sin inside of us, each one of us is capable of betraying or denying Jesus. And so sooner or later, every single one of us in this sanctuary this morning is going to fail at some point. So it's really important that we know how to deal with failure when it happens, because it's going to happen. It's vital that we learn the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So let's talk about that for a few minutes this morning, okay? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to true repentance and a return to Christ. But worldly sorrow only leads to regret and remorse. And then finally, death. So let's look at Peter and Judas to see what we can learn because both of these men failed miserably, but each of them dealt with their failures very, very differently. We often think that these two men were so different, but actually they were very, very much alike. Both of them were loved and called by Jesus to follow him. Both of them had respectable positions among the disciples. Remember, Judas was the treasurer. And Jesus was probably one of Jesus, uh, or Peter was probably one of Jesus's three closest friends. <clears throat> Both of them had to be rebuked or corrected by Jesus. 
Remember, Judas was rebuked for complaining about the wastefulness of the perfume that Mary poured out on Jesus' feet. Peter had to be rebuked and corrected a lot of times. Neither one of them was perfect, but nobody would have expected either one of them to fail the way they both did. Nobody believed that Peter would deny knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. Nobody believed that Judas was a greedy thief and was willing to sell out Jesus for money. Jesus warned both of them about what they would do before they did it. And and yet both of them did it anyway. So what was the difference between Judas and Peter? Well, one believed in Jesus for eternal life, and one did not. The only difference that affected their eternal destiny was the fact that Peter believed in Jesus for eternal life and Judas did not. It's not because one was a better person or lived a better life than the other one, because they both did good and bad. But one chose to believe and one didn't. It's that simple. Now, after betraying Jesus, both Peter and Judas regretted their actions and were sorry for what they had done. When Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned to die, he felt remorse, and he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver, remember? He he tried to return it to relieve his guilty conscience, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knew what he did was wrong, and he was sorry. But instead of going to Jesus and seeking his forgiveness, Judas went out and hanged himself. Even though Judas felt remorse and regret for what he had done, it didn't lead him to repentance, which is a change of heart attitude. It didn't lead him to turn around and run to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Instead, he refused to come to Jesus, and his remorse led him to despair and ultimately to death. That's worldly sorrow. On the other hand, After Peter's denial, he came to understand that he wasn't this strong rock that he thought he was. His self-reliance was gone. He knew without a doubt that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's why he ran to the tomb on Easter morning. He had to see and know that Jesus had risen from the dead, hoping that Jesus would forgive him. Remember after fishing all night when Peter realized it was Jesus calling to them from the shore? What did he do? He immediately jumped out of the boat, jumped into the water, and and tried to get to Jesus as fast as he could. Peter came running to Jesus, and Jesus forgave Peter and restored their relationship. And then he was able to use Peter mightily for the rest of his life. See, Peter repented and brought his failures to Jesus and was forgiven. That's godly sorrow. Now, did Judas have opportunities to repent? Yes. Did he repent? Sadly, no. Judas had hardened his heart to the point that he not only would not, but could not repent. He had locked the door from the inside and thrown away the key. Now, think about it. Only 11 other men in all of history had had the intimate personal relationship that Judas had with Jesus on earth. No man has ever been more exposed to God's love and compassion and power and forgiveness and grace. No man has had more evidence of Jesus' deity. No man had more knowledge, firsthand knowledge of the way of salvation. Yet despite those three years with Jesus, Judas did not take that step of faith. He persistently resisted and rejected God's truth and God's grace and even God's own son to the point that he became a willing instrument of Satan. Peter and Judas both deserve hell, just like the rest of us deserve hell. But Peter repented and believed Jesus for forgiveness of sin. Judas, though feeling remorse and regret, would not. See, godly sorrow, again, leads to true repentance and a return to Christ. 
On the other hand, worldly sorrow only leads to regret and remorse, and then finally death. Now, I want you to remember, there is no sin too big for Jesus to forgive if you truly repent. He will forgive you if you simply turn from it and come back to him. Now, getting back to our text in verse 28, John doesn't give us any record of the trial that uh, Jesus had with Caiaphas and the entire Sanhedrin, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. You can read about it in Mark if you want to. But between verses 24 and 28, they met secretly and illegally in the middle of the night to try to build a case against Jesus by bringing in false witnesses. But see, because Jesus hadn't committed any crime, these false witnesses just started contradicting each other. So Caiaphas tried another approach. He knew that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God. So he put Jesus under oath to make it a matter of record and recorded testimony and legally binding, and he asked him point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said that he indeed was the Son of God, knowing that by answering that, he would sign his own death warrant. So at last, they have what they wanted. Caiaphas had had decreed that this was blasphemy, which was a capital offense according to Jewish law. Now remember, holding a trial in the middle of the night was completely illegal. So at the moment of daybreak, I mean, we're talking early, on Friday morning, the entire council quickly met just long enough to make this trial look as if it were legal, and they unanimously vote to sentence Jesus to death. The problem was only the Romans could grant the death penalty. So they rushed Jesus immediately to be the first one at the Roman court at the break of dawn to stand in front of Pilate, who was the governor of Rome. I mean, the Roman governor there. Their goal was to have Pilate rubber stamp their decision to kill Jesus and carry out the execution before the crowds were aware of what was happening so that they could just get on with their Passover celebration. When they got to Pilate's headquarters, the Jewish leaders stayed outside because, according to their rules, entering a, Jewish, or a Gentile's house would make the Jews unclean and unable to participate in the Passover festival. So instead of going in to see Pilate, Pilate had to come out to see them. And by the way, this was, there was no such Old Testament uh, ceremonial, ceremonial law or regulation. This was a man-made law. The rabbis had invented these kind of things to isolate and separate themselves from the Gentiles. So how ironic that these religious leaders refused to enter Pilate's palace because they didn't want to defile themselves by breaking one of their man-made laws so that they could celebrate Passover while at the same time they're plotting to kill the Son of God, the one who came to actually fulfill the Passover. What a bunch of hypocrites. Now, in verse 29, we see that the first thing Pilate wanted to know was what was Jesus charged with? Because, see, normally the Jews would never turn one of their own people over to the hated Romans. And Pilate and the Jews shared a mutual hatred for one another. So he realized that something wasn't normal about this case. So Pilate demanded that they provide a legal charge against Jesus. Now, this was a problem for the Jews. They knew that their charge of blasphemy against Jesus because he claimed to be the son of God wasn't going to stand up in a Roman court. So they answered as vaguely as possible and said, well, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Or in other words, are you insulting us like we'd bring a man to you to be executed who hadn't committed a crime? Which is exactly what they had done, right? Jesus had done nothing wrong They couldn't find one single crime against him, and they had worked at it. They had worked at trying to find something, and if there was something they could have found, they would have found it. All they had was this religious charge of blasphemy, and Rome was not interested in getting involved in religious, Jewish religious disputes. Believe me, the last thing Pilate wanted to do was get involved in a Jewish court case, a religious case, especially at Passover. So he tried to evade the issue. After all, if this prisoner was causing religious problems for the Jews, let the Jews try him under their own law. So Pilate said, take him and judge him according to your own law. 
Now, capital punishment for a blasphemer under the law of Moses was stoning. So Pilate basically has told them, go handle it yourself. I give you an exemption from Roman law, which prohibited, prohibited them from carrying out executions. Whatever your law says, go do it. Take care of yourself. Take care of it yourself. But the Jews respond in verse 31, well, we're not permitted to put anybody to death. We can't do it. It would be a violation of Roman law. But see, they had just been told by the representative of Roman law to go do, treat him by Jewish law. To go do whatever they needed to do. So why in the world don't the religious leaders just go do what Pilate told them to do? Stone Jesus and be rid of him. Why are they forcing this issue? Well, look at verse 32. It gives us the answer. So that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Jesus had said that he was going to be die, would die by being lifted up. That's how the Romans executed criminals. They lifted them up on a cross. The Jews executed people by throwing them down and stoning them. You see, this entire trial is under the control of a sovereign God to ensure that every detail of prophecy and every word that Jesus spoke would be fulfilled. If Jesus had ever said one thing that was wrong or not true, then he wouldn't be God. He's a fraud. If the prophecies weren't fulfilled, then the Bible is full of lies and Christianity would collapse. But every single detail has been fulfilled to the letter. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that Jew, the Jewish authorities had changed their charges against Jesus and accused him instead now of telling people not to pay their taxes to Caesar and also claiming to be a king. See, their goal is to portray Jesus as an insurrectionist who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. And that was a charge that Pilate couldn't ignore because to claim to be a king was considered to be treason. So in verse 33, it says that Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? In order to determine whether or not Jesus was a threat to Roman power. But Jesus uses this conversation with Pilate to reveal his true identity to him. When Jesus plainly told Pilate that he was a king, but that his kingdom was not of this world, Pilate realized that Jesus was no threat to Rome. And then Jesus told Pilate that the reason he was born and the reason that he came into this world was to testify to the truth and that everyone on the side of truth hears his voice. Now, girls, what is this truth that Jesus came into the world to testify about? It's the truth about God, the truth about man and sin, the truth of salvation, the truth of heaven and hell, the truth of the gospel, the truth of forgiveness, and the truth about eternal life. That's the truth that Jesus came into the world to testify about. See, this was Pilate's cue. It was a test of whether or not he, Pilate was truly interested in seeking the truth or not. Jesus was giving Pilate an invitation to respond. Pilate? Will you hear my voice? Will you listen to me as I speak the truth to you about the reason I've come to this earth? But how does Pilate respond? He says, what is truth? See, evidently Pilate had come to believe what many of us, many in his day and in ours too, believed, that there is no absolute truth. See, to Rome and to many people today, truth was relative. It was whatever helped advance their own personal agenda or their political goals. So it could be anything. Your truth can be different than my truth. They didn't believe in absolute truth. Man hasn't changed a lot since then, has he? So he says, what is truth? Now, Pilate didn't really want an answer, and he didn't wait around to get one. If he had been sincere and really wanted to know about truth, he wouldn't have immediately ended the conversation and walked away. See, Pilate threw away the chance to come to know truth for himself. He looked truth in the face, refused to see it, and walked away, lost in his sin. 
Now in verse 39, we see that Pilate goes out again to the Jews and emphatically tells them, I find no basis at all for a charge against Jesus. He's committed no crime that I can see. There have been no witnesses. There's been no testimony. There's been no evidence. And at this point, Pilate had the power and the authority to set Jesus free. And he should have. But see, there's no way the religious leaders were going to settle for that. And by now, outside the praetorium, the crowd was growing larger and larger as people started waking up for the day, and the word was spreading that Jesus had been arrested. And Mark tells us that the chief priests had begun to poison the growing crowd by spreading lies about Jesus. And so Pilate was afraid that releasing Jesus would infuriate the Jews and possibly start a riot, which could cost him his job and position. So he tried to straddle the fence. He didn't have anything against Jesus, and he knew Jesus was innocent of the charges against him, but see, to do the right thing and free Jesus could have costed him his career and his position. Now in verse 39, we see that Pilate thought he had come up with a way to get out of this mess. Every year there was a custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover, and so Pilate hoped to play the crowd off of their religious leaders and forced these religious leaders to agree to Jesus' release. Pilate thought for sure that the people would choose Jesus, because after all, he was an innocent man, first of all, but also just a few days earlier they had hailed him as their Messiah. So he brought Jesus and a prisoner named Barabbas in front of the crowd, and he asks, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? But see, the sight of Jesus bound with the rope like a helpless prisoner made it clear that Jesus wasn't going to meet their, meet, their expectations of a Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And that allowed the chief priests to manipulate the crowd. Pilate must have been shocked to hear the crowd shout, No, not Jesus. Give us Barabbas. They rejected Jesus a completely innocent man, and instead chose Barabbas, a guilty, convicted criminal. And this chapter ends with Pilate releasing Barabbas. But he's still stuck with Jesus, a man he wants nothing to do with and who is a political bombshell. And we're going to see what happens next, next week. Now let's look at Barabbas for just a minute. He jumped at the chance to trade places with Jesus. Because guess what? He was scheduled to be executed, right? So he jumped at the chance to trade places with Jesus. Barabbas is the first person who could literally say that Jesus died in his place. I mean, if anybody knew what it meant that Jesus died in his place, it was Barabbas. He was a guilty, convicted criminal. But he was set free, and then Jesus died in his place. In fact, the cross that Jesus hung on was probably originally the one intended for Barabbas. <clears throat> now, I want you to stop and think about that for just a minute. Barabbas is a picture of each one of us. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. Each one of us is guilty of sin, like Romans 3.23 says. And we all deserve the wages of our sin. What is the wage of sin, girls? Death. We all deserve to die. Barabbas should have been on the cross instead of Jesus because he was guilty and he deserved to die. Now, how many of you here this morning know that you should have been on the cross instead of Jesus because you are guilty of sin and deserve to die? Raise your hand. You know, you can't be saved if you don't understand that fact. Jesus died for sinners. And if you can't accept the fact that you're a sinner, then Jesus can't do anything for you. But see, that's the mindset of those who are lost. They are convinced that they can get to heaven on their own. That they're good enough in their own strength. Or that all the good they've done in their life will outweigh the bad and earn them a place in heaven. But as we've talked about this year, ladies, the Bible says we can't do enough good things to get into heaven. 
So each one of us here today is like Barabbas. We are guilty and unworthy of being saved. We deserve death. Now think about this. Barabbas didn't do anything to earn his pardon. He wasn't pardoned because of his good behavior or his promises to change his ways. If anything, he was pardoned because of how evil he was. Because remember, Pilate chose to offer the choice between Barabbas and Jesus because he thought Barabbas was so bad that the people would surely choose to free Jesus instead. So Barabbas did absolutely nothing to earn his pardon. But when Jesus took his place, it meant that Barabbas was declared not guilty and went free. And at 9 o'clock that Friday morning, it was Jesus who was nailed to the cross that was meant for Barabbas. He was the one that hung between two thieves. So like Barabbas, we can do absolutely nothing to earn our pardon from sin. We are guilty, and we can't do anything about it. Also, Barabbas should have been on the cross that day, but instead Jesus died in his place, and in my place, and in your place. But Barabbas' pardon wasn't automatic. I mean, Barabbas could have spit in Pilate's face and said, I don't need your pardon. Go ahead and crucify me. And I'm sure he would have been crucified. And maybe a different prisoner would have gone free. But no, Barabbas recognized the offer of a lifetime and he jumped at it. He didn't ask, ask the questions why. In the same way, the pardon that Jesus offers us is only effective for the people who receive it. It's not automatically applied to your life, girls. You have to believe it, but you also have to receive it. Now, as far as we know... Although Barabbas was physically saved, he was never spiritually saved. I mean, Jesus changed places physically with Barabbas, and he was freed physically. But we don't know whether Barabbas believed and received Jesus as his sin substitute. And if he, hadn't done, if he didn't do that, he was not saved spiritually, as far as we know. He was so close, but so, yet so far away. How about you? Jesus exchanged his life for yours so that your life can be saved. Have you accepted and received this exchange? I like what Robbie Zacharias says. He says, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So if you haven't made that exchange, then you are sitting here today physically alive, but spiritually dead, just like Barabbas. And you'll share the same eternal life in hell with him if he hadn't accepted Jesus. But Jesus is here today holding out his gift of eternal life to you. All you have to do is to receive it. Let's pray. If you're here today and you've never taken that first step of belief and trust in Jesus, would you just come to him right now? Don't harden your heart like Judas did and refuse to come to Jesus. Right where you're sitting, tell him you're sorry for your sin, for living your, for yourself and according to the way you've seen fit. Choose to surrender your life and start living your life from this day forward for him instead of for yourself. Just talk to God right where you're sitting and say something like, Lord, today I'm ready to admit my guilt before you. I can't do anything to save myself, so please wash away my sin with the blood that Jesus shed when he died in my place on that cross. And then receive his forgiveness and begin to walk with him, trusting him to teach and guide you. And Jesus, there are no words that could ever thank you for what you were willing to do for me, for us. Honestly, Lord, my mind can't fully understand or grasp it, just a small part of it. But I understand enough to know that your love for me is so great that you willingly died on that cross in my place and took the punishment for my sin so that I wouldn't have to. And then you rose again to prove it. 
So Holy Spirit, would you move in this room today? Would you call each heart to come and follow? For those of us who know you, Jesus, help us to love you more and to obey you completely. For those of us who have denied or betrayed or failed you in some way this morning, Lord, would you help us bring our failure to you right now and receive your forgiveness? For any of us who are struggling with a cup of suffering that's been allowed to come into our lives, we ask you, Lord, for the strength and the trust and the help in yielding to your will and trusting you in it. And again, Lord, for those who haven't yet come to you, may they realize that they're lost in a world of darkness that only can lead to death and eternal punishment. Holy Spirit, work in their hearts. Bring that truth alive to them. And may they choose to receive the gift of your death in their place like Barabbas, simply by receiving it. And it's in your son's precious name that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks, girls. See you next week.